Good morning. I'll be reading from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. When my son, Porter was only a month old, my wife took him for his one-month check-in. Given that Porter was our first, we were hyper-vigilant to make sure that we were doing 200% of what needed to be done to make sure that this child was healthy and well, which is the case for most, if not all, first-time parents. And as more kids come, that sense of panic And fear, which typified the first child, can sometimes kind of feel like a distant past. Oh, we did that? Oh, not anymore. With Porter, we were struggling those first couple of months to keep his weight where it should be. And here we were at his first month check-in, and he wasn't at his birth weight. So you can imagine how this made us feel, but in particular, how it made and how it felt for Christy as she was the one staying up all night feeding this child and doing everything under the sun to provide for our little boy. So Christy's at the doctor's office talking with our pediatrician whom we love dearly. That's actually probably one of the things we missed most about our time in Louisville was our pediatrician. Um, Weird flex. And Dr. Burkon was giving us every bit of information that we needed when it came to the nutrition and to the feeding habits of our newborn child. He went above and beyond to make sure that we knew everything that we needed to know that was necessary for the care and provision of our child and who the different specialists that we could meet if we needed to do that. And as you can imagine, a lot of this information was necessary and needed But given the reality of being overwhelmed, the lack of sleep, my wife is just trying to do one thing at a time. At the close of this appointment, Chris is putting Porter in his car seat, which for his first year of life, my goodness, that boy hated car seats. So he is screaming like a banshee, and the doctor is continuing to give all this good, helpful information. And in a moment that was incredibly dear to my wife and incredibly meaningful to me, He stopped, he touched Christy on the shoulder, and he said, if you remember nothing else, I want you just to remember these two things. You're a great mom, and just keep feeding your son when he's hungry. The passage in front of us this morning is the, if you remember nothing else, passage of Deuteronomy. We've talked about a lot of things for a lot of weeks, and somehow we are still in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. This passage, the Shema, is the creed of Israel. It's the pledge of allegiance, if you will, for the people of God. All the things that Christie was trying to remember in caring for Porter, 
by Dr. Burkhan's care and affection of your great mom and keep feeding your kid is summarized by God through Moses to the people of God in these verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love your God with everything. It's come to be referred to by the first imperative of that passage. The first imperative is here, and we don't call it the here. We use the Hebrew word for it, which is Shema, and so we call it the Shema. Jew, uh, Jews all around the world, even to this day, will, will repeat this as a prayer twice a day, every day, repeating the words of the Shema. But the word here means something so much more than just processing information. It means so much more than just listening or hearing informational, you know, going in one ear and out the other. It's synonymous with obedience, with applying to your life. So when Moses says, hear, O Israel, he's calling them to covenant obedience. And so if you hear nothing else in this whole series... I want you to hear these kind words. Everything that we've covered through the Ten Commandments all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1 is in a sense summarized in the Shema. Everything that we're going to cover is summarized in a sense in the Shema. It's a mysterious statement, profound yet foundational. It's a statement about God, a summation of the Ten Commandments, and then a practical command of how to live your life. What we learn in this text about God is that He is one, that He is to be solely adored, that our hearts to be solely for Him, and that the outpouring service of our hearts and in our lives speaks to the exclusive, unmixed affections that we ought to have for this God. Our God, whom exists in three persons and one essence, is gloriously one in nature and the only one in the cosmos. And in light of that glorious God, we are called to be one and exclusive in our affections and responses to God. Which brings us to the point of today's sermon, which is this, the oneness of God demands our fidelity and oneness of affection to God in all of life. The oneness of God demands our fidelity and the oneness of affection to God in all of life. We're going to first look at how God is one, both in terms of the the theological priorities that we ought to have and the pastoral call of God being exclusively one, After that, I want us to look at how the oneness of God speaks to the oneness and the unmixed affections that we ought to have for this God, how our love of God should permeate to every facet of our lives. And lastly, just the practical, what does it look like? If your heart is consumed with God, how will that look in the everyday? So today's outline will be three points, one essence, the oneness of God the oneness of affection, and the oneness of mission. The oneness of God, oneness of affection, and oneness of mission. So church, as we step into the oneness of God as described in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we have to make two distinctions to be helpful in our study. 
First, we need to look at the theological claims that are being made in this verse, and then we're going to consider, in light of those theological claims, the pastoral concern of Moses for us this morning. Let me just say this. You can't get good pastoring done apart from good theology, and you can't get good theology done unless its end goal is worship. There's no dichotomy there. We have to have both. We have to. It's not disconnected. And there might be some here today that believe that worship is disconnected from theology. That's an an interesting theology that you would hold. It's everywhere. We have thoughts of God, and so we must make sure that we wed them together, especially this morning, especially in this text. So let's look at the theological claims of this text, of just verse 4. Verse 4 might be one of the most important bedrock verses theological ideas that we have on the essence of God in our Bibles. This is a huge text, and so we're going to have a five-part sermon series. On, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's really important, though. This is a very important text. There's, there's three distinctions that I want us to make, the, three theological priorities I want us to have. First, that there is only one God. That's the first thing that we need to see in verse 4. There is only one God. Secondly, that our God is one in nature. So he's one in relation to heaven and earth, and then internally he is one by nature. And then thirdly, that our one God exists in three distinct persons. One God, three persons. One essence, three persons. The Shema is an important theological creed for the people of God because it, def- it declares emphatically that there is only one God. We are a monotheistic religion. There's only one God. That's not just we are saying we prefer this one on the buffet line of gods. We are saying not only do we believe that there is one God, but there is factually, unequivocally, no other God. There is one Lord in heaven. It wasn't a lowercase g God that ascended to the almighty position. It wasn't a human that became and ascended to a God-like authority. We don't believe in a pantheon of gods that Yahweh is likened to that of Zeus. There is no other God and there is no one like the Lord. But not only is this a claim that there is one God when we look at the cosmos, but we are making a profound statement about the nature of our God. That in his very essence, he is one. God in and of himself, in nature and being, is one. The word for this concept, the doctrine, is the simplicity of God. And by this, I'm not saying that he is intellectually lacking, like he is one crayon short of a full set. The idea of this is that he is one. The simplicity of God, if I was to define it, is this. God is not comprised of parts or components, but that God is one. And some of you guys are going like, man, this is like, we're really splitting hairs on this point. This is important because like, let's take, let's take my car for an example. Let's say I'm trying to sell Matthew Williams my car, but I have a tire missing. And I said, hey, Matthew, got a great deal. This car is in great, pristine condition. Do you want to buy my car? Matthew would say, "Uh, no, something is missing from that car. There's something that would make it whole, 
that is no longer there. And so in order for it to be a car in the truest sense of the term, it has to have all four tires, Caleb, don't you know? I said, okay, 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 okay. How about this? Better deal. Give you a discount and I'll give you the tire, but that's the car. Here's my tire. I'm selling you my car. We would also say, well, that also falls short because there needs to be something in addition to it in order to make that wheel a car, in order to make it something. Or if I replaced the radio of my car, I would enhance it. My car is made of components, things that can be added or taken away from it, additions that make it nicer or less than it is. That's not God. God, you can't take things away from him. All that is of him is him. Think about Think about the example of love, the love of God, the joy of God, the fruits of the spirits, you name them, any, any of those things, that, that God is love. It's not as if God is wearing a trench coat with little vials of virtues that he has and that they're an addition, something that he's perfected or worked on. That When we say that God is love, we are saying in human language, we're describing the Almighty, that he, that is simply him. He's not divisible. It's not like a tire and he's got a radio and he's got cool shocks and a big trunk and maybe a spoiler. No, we're saying that all the qualities and the nature of being is simply one. So the doctrine of simplicity speaks to God being one in essence, one in will, one in action, beautifully displayed in three persons. God is gloriously one in a monotheistic sense. There is no other God. God is one in regarding to his nature, not being composed of parts or mixed or divisions, but he's simply one. But furthermore, some of you guys are going, hey, wait a minute. I know Christian math. We, there's three. There's three and there's one. How on earth is that happening? God is one but exists internally, co- gloriously coexisting in all three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, gloriously coexisting in glory, in honor, in eternality, in divine nature. All that is said of God can be said of each person in the Trinity, each person unified in mission and in will. I've used this illustration before, but we often, some churches, some songs, Christian songs, will popularly put the Father is this wrathful, old man kind of character. And the son is like, dad, please, I love some people. Let me go die and save the church. But given the doctrine of simplicity, they're one in mission, one in will, one in glory, one in action. So when we read scripture, we find that though God is one, we see it's beautifully distinguished in three persons. So the father sends the son because he loves his people. The son goes and accomplishes salvation and the spirit applies, unified, simply God in will, in action. That's the simplicity of God. We affirm this. I'm just pulling the Oz curtain and we're seeing the man, the doctrine behind the curtain. It's important to see this. And, and one, one, the pitfalls that we can fall into, particularly when we read this text, what makes us stand against the people of Israel or Judaism today in being monotheistic is that we, we have Deuteronomy 6, in light of all of Scripture on the Trinity, protects us from a radical oneness idea 
this idea that, that God is a man, like, like let's use me for an example, I am both a son and a father and an employee at Kingsway Community Church. Three roles, one person, one essence. That is radical oneness. That is not at all what we believe as the church. We as the church affirm that God is one and that there are three distinct persons. The other pitfall that we can have other than radical oneness is to have radical threeness. We believe that there are three gods within gods, that that's, we would be uh, polytheistic at that point. We, we, don't, we don't hold that either. And so Deuteronomy 6 protects us when we understand it properly. The Christian God is so much more glorious than one guy that has a multiple personality disorder and so much more glorious than a pantheon of gods that bicker back and forth. We believe in one unified, co-glorious, co-eternal God existing in three persons. So, so we believe that the Father is not the Son. We believe that the Father is not the Spirit. We believe that the Son is not the Father or the Spirit. We believe that the Spirit's not the Father or the Son. They're distinct in what they do. Yet, anything that you can say of any one person, what we say of the Father has to be true of the Son. What we say of the Son has to be true of the Spirit in all the different ways that we can run around the bin. Because we believe that our God is one. Matthew Barrett helps us by quoting Aquinas, which would be hard to read on our own. So I appreciate Barrett in making sense of this. And he helps us to understand this idea of God's simplicity and Trinity when he writes this. The whole fullness of divine nature is present in each of the persons. Even when we say that the Son, for example, is God from God, we do not mean that He is God from God as whole from part or part from whole or as part from part. No, if we, if there is God from God, the whole God is from whole God. That is because God has no parts. So church, let me invite you to give me your ears once again if I've lost them. Divine simplicity is important because it makes God so uniquely glorious. Men died for the doctrine of the Trinity. And it was because men died defending what the Bible taught of God using this text And looking at this in light of all of Scripture, that we have this glorious God that is self-existing. This is the bedrock of our faith in many ways. One of the ways that it's important, the reason why we would die for the doctrine of the Trinity is because God is self-existing, because he is one existing in three persons. For God to be love, going back to that example, in order for God to be, for me to know love, for me to, we, community group, let's, let's use that. If I was in community group and I'm 19, I haven't met Christy yet, and I'm talking about love and I can't wait to be married and, and to know a companion, I don't know that. I don't, I don't, and you would, you would say, just wait, you know, Caleb. It, it's great because the older married couples in the church would say, I know that. For God to love, Think about that. If for God to love, if he was just one, if it was the man with three roles, then he would need creation in order to know love. But God has known love from all eternity. 
And so there is the, the glorious self-existence of God means that, that creation, it's, this isn't like a mutual beneficiary, the mutual uh, beneficial um, relationship where we get saved from hell and then you get to experience something you never experienced before. God is gloriously self-existing. He is jolly, happy, and in love within the Trinity. And that's the God we serve, which is so different than the worldviews of centuries past or of our idols today. Our God speaks to us out of grace and out of his love that he wants to share with us. We get to experience love. God's not some angry man in the sky. He is glorious and deserving of all honor. Our statement of faith says it like this. The Godhead thus exists in a perfect unity, indivisible as to nature and substance, yet inseparably distinguished as persons who, get this, enjoy a fullness of fellowship and love. Israel's God and our God exist in perfect unity. He does not need to save someone and judge someone in order to get something he doesn't have. He simply has everything that he needs and is glorious and perfect in and of himself. So when Moses says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, he is saying, dear church, there is no one like our God. When we say that the Lord is one and exists in Trinity, we are saying that there's no other reason than God's grace, which is getting something we don't deserve, and his mercy, not getting what we do deserve, that we're saved. The first time I heard a sermon on the Trinity, I was well in my 20s. It's, this is an important doctrine, again, that men sacrificed much for. And it's important for us, though hard to hear sometimes, and some terminology might be new, it is important for us because it distinguishes us from everything else, from everyone else, from the world. No, no, no. When, 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 because, because this is the thing. When we read the Shema, you see the Lord our God is one. All right, love the Lord your God. With all, and then, okay, I'll spend my devotion in that part of the verse and forget the first part. What, what on earth is the Lord your God is one mean in relation to the others? Moses is proclaiming to Israel, there's no one, there is no one like our God. But this brings to his pastoral concern for the people of God. It's not, again, it's not just doctrine. Doctrine leads to worship. Pastoral concern is undergirded with what God displays and teaches us of himself through his word. The pastoral concern here is that this unique God, Moses is calling the people of Israel to fidelity. Israel, you're prone. You remember, you remember the wilderness generation? Remember how they didn't make it to the promised land? Because they were unbelieving and followed idols. Remember how you guys complained and you wish you were back in Egypt? Don't be like that. Remember, the Lord your God is one. There's no other God and there's no one like him. Guard your heart. Guard your affections for this God. Which brings us to point two, verses 
5 and 6, the oneness of our affections. This text looks familiar to us because it's the first part of the great commandment quoted by Jesus Christ in the Gospels. We see that Moses moves from talking about the oneness, the glorious oneness of God. No components, no mixed parts, no, no divisions, no a little bit of this and a little bit of that. God is one. So church, be one in your affections for God. Don't be mixed. Don't, don't, don't be divided. Don't follow idols on this day and Jesus Christ on this day. Don't go, uh, uh, God, church, Sundays, got it. My career, my personal time, that's me. Moses is pastoring us this morning in this text, church. Look at your affections. Behold your God, one. And look at your heart, which is mixed, which again reminds us of the great need of grace at all times, in every season of every day. He is calling us to love God with all of our heart, our soul, and our might. I want you to look at the categories. So he gives categories, and then he gives descriptors of those categories. So heart, soul, might. Got it. Okay. I, how I think through things, how I feel through things, and what I lift. Got it. I can do that. I can follow the Lord faithfully. But I want you to look at the descriptions of that. The emphasis is not so much on the breadth of category, which of course is all-inclusive and nothing less. The idea behind this is all, that all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength is for God. Unmixed, undivided, exclusively privileged to the affections of God. So let me simplify it. As I've said before, the Lord your God is one, so you ought to have a oneness of affection. God wants you to love him. He wants you to love him with your hearts and with your soul and with your might. But church, Christians sitting there today, God wants all of your heart. He commands it. But I also, like, the, the command isn't do this, climb this mountain, run on this treadmill, go through these different rites. What is the most important summary statement for the people of God? Love. What a, what a different way that hits. Out of all the imperatives he could have said, he said, give me your ear. Love me with everything. I am unique and yes, I was quaking and shaking on the mountain. I was in the fog. There was thunder. You were fearful. I am other, but I want you to know me and love me. And I know, because this is my temptation, we can sit here and we go, God is other. I feel that. But let me get my act together before I come to God. We always need the grace of God. And it is because of the grace of God that enables us to be close to God and to know the love of God. And so let me challenge you this morning, please, please, please hear me on this. Don't, don't, fix, don't fix the house up before you turn in faith to Christ. Come now, love the Lord. Give him everything. Trust this unique, all-glorious God who has no benefit per se. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need you to, to, to give love in order for him to experience love. He is glorious. Love him unreservedly and see how the Lord meets you in Christ.
Our hearts, if we're honest, are mixed with affections. We're divided at times, even when we're at our best. We feel that. We don't know what it means to have oneness or consistency, which again reminds us of the need of grace. So in view of this glorious, transcendent God that we serve and for all that he's done for us in Jesus Christ, how are we to serve him? It's been mentioned, and I've mentioned this, Deuteronomy is much like the book of Romans for the Old Testament. So what, what is the gospel like in the Old Testament? Deuteronomy. You should know it's the backbone for what God, who he is, what he's done, and how he has saved his people, just like how Romans is, a thorough explanation of the gospel in the new. Rome, I mean, Luther said that if all the Bible was lost but Romans, the gospel would be saved. It's a little much. It's a lot of, that's a lot of sauce. But the Shema, if Deuteronomy is Romans, the Shema would be Romans 12, as Daniel Block connects for us. This is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And what Moses is calling us to is nothing less than offering all of our lives and everything that we do to this glorious God as worship. And our worship is simply this. You want to get on the altar? our affections for God. God doesn't ask us to climb the mountain, doesn't tell us to make a great name for ourselves to impress him so that he'll love us. He doesn't tell us to pursue the American dream and live a quiet life in order to be awarded with eternal life. God doesn't need to be impressed with our action. He doesn't need us to give him something that he lacks because God is simply Trinity. God tells us to love him in light of who he is. God tells us to look at his son, Jesus Christ. God tells us to listen and to hear what he has done. And in view of all the mercies of God in our life, be head over heels for God in Christ. We love God, church, because he first loved us. I want you to hear that as you look at the second part of this, this passage, and you're going, all right, I gotta love God with everything. I've gotta be diligently teaching my kids. I gotta make sure that my gate outside has something written on it. Live, laugh, love, Jesus died for you. How do I do this effectively? I want you to remember the gospel. I want you to look at Jesus Because we love God only when we are caught and captivated with a vision of what he has done for us. We love because he placed love in our hearts. We love with all because he gave all in Christ. The only people, this is what struck me when I was reading Romans 12, the only people crazy enough to be a living sacrifice are the people that have caught a vision of of the gospel. (laughs) The only people that are willing to go, yep, that's a win. I'm going to do that. I'm going to sacrifice my life are those that see and, and, and see the gloriousness of God 
in the face of Jesus. This vision of God has to be the starting point. And that's why it is for Moses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. We always start with God. And when we see God for who he is, we must look to the Savior because we can't approach that God on the mountain apart from a mediator, apart from somebody loving God with all his heart. The only one capable of doing such was Christ Jesus. And when we see that he has provided everything that we need, our affections move, our lives change. This vision of God, this oneness of affection results in a oneness and singularity of our mission. Point three, though verse seven through nine carry the most words, church, Moses's point couldn't be more simple or more clear in these verses. Our mission is to love God. This is the mission, oneness and mission. Your mission is this. Our mission is to love God and to make much of him in all of life. It's that simple. It's that simple. Moses paints a picture for us of what it looks like to understand that God is one and what it means to love God with everything. He uses verbs. Notice the verbs in this passage. There's, there's, it, it is quite the painting. We have here... We have love, teach, talk, bind, write to illustrate for us what God does in the heart and how what, when we're captivated in our hearts, in our beings. Notice the, the, the frame of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. It's talking about you. That's God, you're captivated with God. We start with God, that impacts us, and then the rest of the passage is looking out. What does that look like? If, the, if stuff's going on here because you saw the Lord, how does that look in your life? What does it look like to be head over heels? Your, your faith is not just a you and Jesus thing. It's a testimony to the world at all times of your God. Oh, there, this is, yeah, there's a, some people are judgmental because they, they dare question how I acted Brother, you said you love the Lord. Sister, you said that you're a Christian, but I'm looking at the fruits of your life. Roots produce fruits. We must not forget this. Verse 7, look at verse 7, describes your faith in the context of your parenting. Parents, diligently. That's the verse to circle. Diligently. Do not, do not let up. Fight the good fight and parenting your children. Be diligent to teach. Because this verse describes that your faith and the context of your parenting, your household, and then it describes everything else outside the home. Parents, are you leading your children? Or are you just waiting for King's Way to feed them spiritually? Do you see yourself in a God-given role to disciple your children? Teenagers, this text should be a caution for you. Mom and dad asking you about your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not, that wasn't, that's not your private thing. God's designed and gifted you with parents to ask you about the most important thing that you're going to, the most important question in your whole life. That is your parents' primary concern. They love you dearly. And when they ask that, it's not because they're trying to judge you. They're trying to love you. Because Jesus changed their lives and they want you to experience that same love. 
Verse seven continues to describe when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you're lying down, when you're rising up. This is a, a mirism, which is a, a, a rhetorical device to show all the things and their opposites from all sides to show you the all-encompassing everything. So Moses is saying everywhere in all of life, the vision and awareness of God's glory and our love for him should be present. There's never a time in which we're off the clock because we're obsessed with God in Christ. Verse eight, this command, to hear the Lord your God is one, is to, is, is to put that, it says like a, a facelift, to, to put that in front of you. That's the paradigm. That's your glasses. You're, you're looking at everything through what, what Doug shared, the glory of God. That when I interact with the world, I'm not thinking about me, I'm thinking about the Lord. Think about how unique he is, how awesome he is. And that changes everything about my life. Verse nine describes the gate of the city. So that's not your house. That, that wasn't a, to, to have a gate, you would have to be really, really well off back then. The gate, everybody shared the gate. Everybody had a, a shared fence. It was the town. So the idea behind this for Moses is that love doesn't have a perimeter. Where you live, wherever you go, there is never a time when, I, when I'm in America I have privileges as an American citizen. When I go to France, I don't know how I got there, but I don't have those same privileges. As a Christian, there is nowhere that I go where God's authority does not meet me, where God's love does not captivate me, where obedience is optional. It's not a part of our perspective on life, but the whole of life is consumed with this. Again, no parts, no divisions, no mixing, no components. This is mine. That is for God. The Shema is the declaration of the beauty of the king. It is the declaration of the beauty of the king. What we sang this morning, the surety of his rule and the loving affection of his people. This is why it's the creed because it says everything that we need to know. There is one God. There's no one like our God. I love my God, and you will never catch me not proclaiming that. I'm consumed with my creator because he changed my life. We are one in affection, and those affections move us to see all of our life in all categories as belonging to God. So though there is much comfort for our souls this morning in this text, maybe you're sitting here and you're struggling with affection. You're going, great, love God. I'm really struggling with that. For those who are sitting here aware of frailty and unfaithfulness, brothers and sisters, we have talked about the Trinity, but the most impacting member in a very real sense is Jesus Christ because he died for my sins. Christ is very God, a very God. And the fidelity that Moses calls you to church, no one can hit that bar. But God, but God sent his son, God of God, very God of very God, light from light, begotten, not made, one with the Father, came, to love God with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might 
he died. So that those by faith, those that are frail, by faith, those that are weak and aware of their needs, by faith, might know the love of God. That's the good news. That even frail and needy as we are, who's holding you fast, dear church? The Lord God, who is one, holds you. The Lord God. Every God-fearing Christian in this room is aware of their need. And so my exhortation to you is to find comfort in the finished work of Christ. That active obedience of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite um, stories of J. Gresham Machen, who is a started a uh, Presbyterian denomination, started Westminster Theological Seminary. As he was dying on his deathbed, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. This is his last words. And may we be a church that when we're frail and when we're broken, we remember there is no one better than Jesus. There is no one better because God has done it all. And when we see Christ, get this, as the church, the Lord your God is one. That sounds mysterious. It sounds other. And in one sense, it should be. But in the other sense, when you look at Jesus and you look at the cross, you are seeing the power of God, the nature of God, the character of God, the mighty hand of God in the face of Christ, the God who is one. And when we see Jesus in the gospel, we are moved to an affection. So I know that there are many days that you might feel like my wife with Porter. That might just be because it's the fifth Sunday and all the kids are in here. But life can feel like nothing more like a fog of war at times. I'm saying this from my own personal experience, that, that, that you can feel suffocated by the weight of just poor decisions one after another, of being caught up with the busyness of the moment, of doing good things, but always neglecting that necessary thing. You're just never good enough. And a text like this just feels like one more rock in your backpack. Let me have your attention as you go. Let me touch you on the shoulder. If you remember nothing else, hear this, Kingsway. God is most gloriously seen in the work of Jesus Christ for you. Trust him and tell the world how you live and tell the world by how you live your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are one, that you are Trinity. We thank you for your wisdom in all things, for your love in all things. All things that we say of Christ and of the Spirit, we say of you this morning, we proclaim. And we thank you for the Son who shows us you who testifies to the true nature of you in the cross, of what you're like. And we thank you as a church for the Son's work 
on our behalf, that he is the substitute for sinners, that he is our savior and our teacher, that he is the high priest who sits, having satisfied every requirement of your law. We thank you that you have prepared good works for us in Christ to walk in them. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who works on our behalf that has sealed us in you. Despite how much we need grace from now till death, Lord, you hold us fast. That he's our comfort when we despair, when we suffer, when we grieve. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that he illumines our hearts to the word of God. He makes clear what you would have us hear and faithfully applies it by your grace. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that he would give us the grace to love you and to thus obey you. Father, help us. We are a needy people. We are a needy people. Father, you are glorious. We give you honor and we lift these things to you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and through your spirit, we pray. Amen.